town meeting on Tuesday night just was so wonderful along those lines. It just felt like everyone was there in, in our brokenness and our frailty, and we were able to share openly, and, and uh, it's just going to spill out from there as, as God continues to lead this church. So praise God for that. I just wanted to share that praise. Why don't we uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into God's word this morning. Father, I ask and pray that you would just use us to your glory and honor, that we would understand what you desire more than anything else, and that is you desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So on a very, very cold January night back in 2017, I had the privilege of attending a meeting that my good friend Jim was leading out. Uh, I don't want to put Jim on the spot, but he's a guy who can handle it. Uh, Jim, as probably many of you know, uh, leads um, a, a ministry that deals with drug and alcohol abuse counseling. And uh, he has the great gift to lead recovery groups and uh, to help people overcome their addictions and, and help them pick up the pieces. And so he was, he was pinch hitting for two weeks in, in, in a recovery group. He was leading out in that and he invited me to join him. And so on a cold, cold, cold January night, it was probably four degrees out that, that evening, I drove to Brewer and uh, I found my way into the parking lot outside of the Congregational Church in Brewer. And I noticed there was not very many cars in the parking lot. The church was dimly lit. And I went around to the front door and I tried to open it up and it was locked. And so I thought, okay, I'm not sure what to, go, to do here. But I walked around the back and of course, I discovered that they were appropriately enough meeting in where? Where were they meeting? They were meeting in the basement, right? That's where these things take place, don't they? And so I opened that creaky door and I walked into the dark, the dark building and I walked down the rickety stairs and I went over there and when I entered the room, Jim was there and there was a group of maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 to 12, maybe 15 that were sitting around tables. And I, I could, you know, I, you walk in and you smell the stench of, of smoke and uh, you notice that everyone's sitting there with their coffee cups and their tattoos and and uh, being an outsider, I just tried to play it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I tried to play it low key, and so I went and found a seat. And uh, not long after, Jim started leading the group, and and uh, he was talking about codependency those two weeks, and he was teaching the uh, the people there about codependency. And uh, I think he started out by asking a scale of one to ten, how many of you know about codependency? And so he went around the room, and people said, you know, I'm a one, I'm a three, I'm a five. And one person humorously said, I should be teaching this class. I, I, I'm a 10 on, ten, on the ten, 10 scale. Um, but as we sat there, as we sat there, something really occurred to me like it had never before as I was sitting there sort of observing, sort of being a part of the process. And it's been an interesting journey from there. I want you to open your Bibles. We'll, we'll talk about this as we move forward. But I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is a parable that I came upon this last week as I was going through my 
um, I was going through my old prayer journal as I've been kind of reviewing God's leading in my life since I started writing a prayer journal in 2003. I've been reading God's way of, of uh, blessing me and, and all of the challenges I've had. And I came to this parable in my prayer journal and uh, I became reacquainted with it this week. Many of you have heard it before, I know. But Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 9, but I want you to notice, first of all, the surrounding context of, of this parable. Luke chapter 18, first of all, it starts in verse 1 with the story of a persistent widow, right? There's this widow that, that has been... Uh, she, she needs justice, and it says there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. There, now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me, from my adversary. And so she needs justice. She's been oppressed. She's been violated. She needs something from this judge because she is in a place of, of inferiority. She is in a place of need, isn't she? And so Jesus goes on to share that parable. Then we come to our parable, the parable, as we're going to look here in a second, of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But immediately after that parable, what happens? Do you see, the, do you see the, the headlines, the titles of each section? It says, Jesus blesses the little children. The little children come to Jesus, and they want to have an audience with him. And Jesus' disciples, they say, no, 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 go away. Don't bother Jesus, right? But what does Jesus say in verse 16? Let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is what? Of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So we see a parable of a widow, a down-and-outer, an out, uh, someone who is hard on her luck. Then we see a story of the children who are, who are pushed away by the disciples, and yet Jesus says, no, 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 no. These are the people that make up the kingdom. These are the ones. Now, after that story comes the story of the so-called rich young ruler, right? And, and our, as we're reading this, if we're reading it with fresh eyes, we would think to ourselves, now here is the really prime candidate for God's kingdom, right? This is the person who has it made. This is the person who has the wealth. He has the knowledge. He has the, the popularity. But what happens in that story? Quite unexpectedly, this is the man who can't be in the kingdom because he's not willing to become as a little child, is he? He's not willing to be humbled. He's not willing to be broken. He's not willing to allow his woundedness to be embraced. But we come now back to verse 9, okay? Let's jump back to verse 9 because here is perhaps the epitome of this distinction between the little children and the rich young ruler, between the persistent widow and the rich young ruler. Jesus is juxtaposing these two different audiences. Verse 9. It says, also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Very interesting way to describe these people. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And consequently, what does it say? And despised others. 
These individuals looked down on others. They felt like they were the cream of the crop. They were the creme de la creme. They had it all figured out. They were righteous. They knew, they knew what rituals to perform. They knew what rules to keep. They kept them flawlessly according to those that observed them who are of the Jewish faith. But Jesus knew what was really going on inside their hearts, didn't he? Luke is able to understand and pull back the curtain and understand what's going on because Jesus goes on to explain this very revealing parable. He says, now there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. As we've talked about, and I know this is a common theme lately in my preaching, but we could do a whole sermon series on this juxtaposition between Pharisees and tax collectors. These are two groups of people that Jesus is frequently addressing, that he's frequently interacting with, that he is frequently making sense of their religious experience. And so you have a Pharisee and you have a tax collector. The Pharisees, as we've talked about before, this, these were literally, the word means, I know I sound like a broken record, but we've got to get it in our brains. The term Pharisee literally means to be a separatist. These were individuals that had to remove themselves from social contact lest they themselves become dirty, lest they themselves become impure. And so the word Pharisee literally means a separatist, one who removes themselves from social contact. So this was the Pharisee, and then it says, and the other was a publican or a tax collector. Now, again, we've talked about this frequently. We have talked about this ad nauseum, but the tax collectors were the despised people in the Jewish, Jewish mindset. They were those that worked for the Roman government. They were collaborators with the Roman government. They were, therefore, impure because they were working for the occupying government that the Jews despised and hated. And they were in contact with Gentiles. Not only that, but they were always honest, of course. So the audience is listening to this, and they're thinking, okay, we know what's going on here. The Pharisee is the one who is righteous. The tax collector is the one who is, who is unrighteous and impure and unclean. And so if you're in that audience, again, you've heard this parable before, no doubt, many of you. You already know many of the, pun the punchline. But I would like us to try to imagine the, the, the extreme nature of this story. Jesus goes on to say, the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh boy, what a, what a beautiful prayer, huh? I thank you that I'm not like other men. Sometimes we, we probably pray this type of prayer as well. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not, you know, I didn't fall into drugs like my brother, or I didn't, you know, fall into this like that fellow church member. Thank you for keeping, you know, so that I can be righteous. He says, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. They're there praying. And he says, thank goodness, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. You've kept me pure. You've kept me holy. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, this guy is actually going above and beyond what the law requires of him. The law doesn't require him to fast any time of the week. There's no, there's no Pentateuchal mandate that says anyone had to fast, but this guy was going above. He was, he was tithing. He was practicing self-control. He, he had it made. He knew it. 
And he gave his tithe, of course, on all that he possessed, even, as we know elsewhere, on the mint and the cumin and the anise. Remember that story in, in Matthew? Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He says, I, I do it. I, I've arrived. Now notice what it says in verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off, what would he do? He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now Jesus shares the quite unexpected punchline. I tell you, this man, this man, the publican, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'd, I'd imagine if, that, if I were in that audience right then and there, my jaw would hit the floor. This, this wretched tax collector, this wretched publican, he made no sorts of visible penance. He was a broken, wounded, frail, sinful man. And yet Jesus says, this guy's going home right with God. This is the one that actually is on good terms with God. You know, it reminds me back in Matthew. Go, go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says something very similar in another parable that is perhaps even more scandalous than this passage. But Matthew chapter 21, he tells this parable, verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But answered afterward, he regretted it, and he did it. He went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, well, the first. Jesus said to him, check this out. He's talking to the Pharisees here. Check this out. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, those who have no longer identified themselves as these things. He doesn't clarify that. He does go on to say in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. But Jesus still refers to them by their titles, doesn't he? He says, tax collectors and harlots. Now, in order for us to perhaps grasp the significance of what Jesus says, could I put this in modern vernacular? Would I, will you give me that privilege? And I'm sure many of us will feel uncomfortable because we think to ourselves, well, that's not what Jesus means. But if we're in that audience, it would be as though Jesus is saying, gays and lesbians go into the kingdom before you. Is that, can I say that? Can I say that? They go into the kingdom before you precisely because, according to what Luke 18 says, those who recognize their brokenness and their nothingness, those who recognize their need are the ones that God says are of his kingdom 
they may not have it all figured out right now. They may not be perfect in their behavior. They may not be perfect in their knowledge, but God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. One of the things that Jesus was trying to do throughout his ministry was impress upon the people that those who were considered the outsiders were actually the insiders. And those that were the insiders were actually the outsiders, right? He's talking to the religious elite. And he's saying, the people you don't think are in are actually in. The people you think are out are in, and those that you think are in are out. Now, we're probably very, very, we're very, very quick to say, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, time out, time out. But they had to reform, right? They had to, they had to grow out of their sin and their lifestyle, so to speak. And let me make it clear, it's not that Jesus is not saying that there is some sort of growth that he is leading people in. But that does not mean that they, at that precise moment, have it all figured out, right? And what Jesus, what I hear him basically saying, is we can take all of our preconceived ideas of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and we can throw them out the window. Because as I understand scripture, there is a single question that determines whether you are a part of God's kingdom. It has two parts. There's one single question. And that is, do you recognize your brokenness? And are you seeking for some other source to remedy your brokenness? That's it. That's it. God is not looking for perfect behavior. He's not looking for perfect knowledge. He's looking for perfection of brokenness and the all-out desire to be healed from that brokenness. I mean, you think about it for a second. If God requires, if, 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 if there was a way to, that God wanted us to have perfect behavior, I mean, how much is enough? How much is enough? If it was an issue of perfect knowledge, how much is enough? I get the, the impression that when we get to heaven, we're going to be learning some things, aren't we? How many of you here feel like you have God all figured out? How many of you feel like you uh, can explain every last bit of God? I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be learning for eternity. I think we're going to be learning to grow in God as well. Not, again, that we are rebellious. But if somebody is humble enough to recognize that they're broken, that is the requirement so that God can help them grow, that God can address their brokenness, that God can heal them of their woundedness. And so what God is seeking is the broken and contrite in heart. Because God can help them grow up. As so long as I have no confidence in myself, and I have confidence in a power outside of myself that can heal me and grow me. God can do something with that, can he? Right? God can't do anything with somebody who does not recognize their brokenness, though. Somebody who is, who is proud in their, 
in their own maturity and in their own knowledge and in their own beliefs. God can only work with those who are willing to be made whole. I'll share a few quotes up here on the screen. Uh, there is uh, three of them. You know, I just load you up with these quotes from different uh, books from Ellen White. But notice what she says here. This is the book Christ's Object Lessons. This is on the chapter, The Two Worshippers, which is the publican and the tax collector. She says, the sense of need, the recognition of our poverty and sin is the very first condition of acceptance with God. It is only he who knows himself to be a sinner that Christ can save. We must know our real condition or we shall not feel, feel our need of Christ's help. We must understand our danger or we shall not flee to the refuge. We must feel the pain of our wounds or we should not desire healing. All our good works are dependent on a power where? Outside of ourselves. I love that line right before, though. We must feel the pain of our wounds or we should not desire healing. Are you aware of your wounds? Do you feel the pain of those wounds? That is the precise prerequisite for God being able to do something with us as we're in our frailty and our brokenness, as we're wounded, as we acknowledge that we need help. If we don't acknowledge we need help, we can never grow into the people that Christ wants us to be. Check out this other slow, uh, smaller quote. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its what? Its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. Nothing is. Apparently, we think, we look at that person and we say, oh man, poor person, what a pathetic situation they're in. You know, wounded and, and broken and, and riddled with this addiction and that addiction. But you know what? Many of those people are more aware of their need than we are. Right? That tax collector was there. He was saying, I can't even look up to heaven because I am so unworthy. And I doubt that the man came there before that and had this huge life transformation where he, that precise moment before, decided he was going to turn his life around. I think he was coming to God in his brokenness and his pain and his recognition of his unworthiness and saying, God, if something's going to change, it's going to have to be outside of myself. There's this other quotation, the last one we'll share. Christ's heart, check this out, Christ's heart is cheered by the sight of those who are poor in every sense of the term, cheered by his view of the ill-used ones who are meek, cheered by the seemingly unsatisfied hungering after righteousness, by the inability of many to begin. He welcomes, as it were, the very condition of things that would discourage many. Those who are there, and they're like, I don't even know how to begin. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to start down that road. I'm so broken, and I'm so pained, and I'm, I'm so riddled with all of these issues in my life. And God says, that's all you need. That's all you need. Just recognize your brokenness. Recognize your frailty. Recognize your wounds. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your inability. And then hand it over to me. I know it sounds like a very, very wishy-washy religion, doesn't it? It sounds like a very simple thing, like that's all that I need to do as long as we are willing to be surrendered, God can take that and make something beautiful. That's all that he asks of us. As I sat there that night, there was 
with my brother Jim. He started talking about different issues of codependency, and he, and he mentioned some, talking about abandonment. And I remember, I remember distinctly one, one young lady, she spoke up and talked about how when she was a young child, her father abandoned her. And um, she says, now here 20 years later, that's probably why I keep giving myself away to different men. And as they just went around that circle, everyone was sharing from their brokenness. And partway through the, the meeting, the door flung open, the back door, and there's this, this young man that ran right in, and he came down and sat next to, to me. I won't say his name, but we'll just say his name was John. And everyone said, hey, John, we haven't seen you for a while. And, and uh, he said, man, I'm so glad that you guys were here tonight. He said, I, I walked like two miles from my house. And what was the temperature? It's four degrees. He said, I walked, I walked over to, to, you know, he walked over the Joshua Chamberlain Bridge from Bangor to Brewer, four degrees out. He said, I walked all the way here, and I didn't see any lights on. And I thought, oh, man, I hope they're here. Because if I have to turn around and walk all the way back, you know, that's going to kill me. But he, he, he came in, and he was glad to see people there. And um, he, he was sharing his brokenness. And he was sharing his pain. And uh, after the meeting got over, um, I, I was sitting there next to him. I said, hey, John, you know, do you need a ride home? Because I didn't want the poor brother to, to uh, have to walk all the way back in the cold. It's interesting. He kind of looked me up and down. And I could tell he was kind of processing, like, is this a guy that I want to have give me a ride? And I'm thinking to myself, how ironic that <laughs> this guy is trying to figure if I'm safe enough, right? And uh, he said, no, 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 it's cool, it's fine. I, I, don't, I don't need a ride. And um, not two minutes later, a couple of other people across the room said, hey, John, you know, do you need a ride home? And I could tell, like, he's, like, wanting to. But then he turns back to me and he says, no, no, it's okay. I don't need a ride. And I said, John, I'll happy to give you a ride. He goes, I'll go with him. And so uh, Jim and I wanted to debrief and process afterwards. And um, I said, hey, John, I'll just be a second. He's like, that's cool. I'm in no hurry, no rush at all. And so he goes out and he, he stands outside as as Jim and I are processing. And everybody else emptied out of the room, and I, 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 I left after we were done, and I, I walk out, and basically all of them were standing outside. What do you think they were doing? They were smoking. Yeah, they were smoking and talking, including John. And, uh, you know, he throw, quickly throws his cigarette out, and he, you know, puts his foot and puts it out. And then we walk towards my car, and, and I just said, John, tell me about yourself. So he started explaining. One of the things he explained in the meeting is that, as we're talking about abandonment, he says, uh, what does it do to your mind when, as a child, the adults that are taking care of you are being paid to do it? He said, what does that do for your understanding of yourself? I thought that was interesting. But he, he began to explain to me how he grew up in Pittsburgh, and he had made his way to Bangor, and uh, I noticed he had tattoos on his hands 
little crosses on his knuckles, all on his knuckles. And he said, yeah, man, I've just been having a really rough time lately. And I'm trying to get things back together. I said, where do you want me to take you? And he said, can you drop me off at Leadbetters in Bangor? Now, any of you know about Leadbetters? Leadbetters is a place that I try to drive by as quickly as I can when I drive. It's in downtown Hammond and uh, Ohio Street corner. There's a lot of shady things that go on at Leadbetters. So I just try to drive by as quickly as I can. I'm thinking, it's about 9 o'clock at night, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to pull into that parking lot and drop off there. But, you know, I decided to do that. And uh, whenever I've driven by before, I've never, I've seen people there, but I've never seen humans there. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I drove up and, and we got into the parking lot, and there was a big stretch limo that was just outside of Leadbetters, and I was thinking, that's interesting, you know. But um, he gets out of the car, and I said, hey, John, maybe I'll see you around. And as he walked into Leadbetters, I thought to myself, there's a human going into Leadbetters. Because I had now seen a child of God going in there. Now, it's cool because for the next month or so, I would see John around town. He didn't have a cell phone, so I wasn't able to call him. But when I would come across him, he would say, yeah, man, I've been sober for two weeks now. I've been, I've been doing well. I'd see him a few weeks later. Yeah, you know, doing well, doing well. You know, as I sat there in that meeting, I sat there in that meeting and I interacted with John. I just thought to myself, such is the kingdom of God. Such is the kingdom of God. Not because they had all their behavior sorted out. Not because they knew scripture forward and back. But because they were the harlots and the tax collectors who were intimately acquainted with their need. And intimately acquainted that, with the idea that the only way that they were ever going to recover as if they laid hold of a power outside of themselves. I think, I, I, I want to say it again, I think that's the only thing God is looking for. Is there a person who understands their brokenness and is thus seeking some source outside of themselves to mend and heal their brokenness? And the degree to which you and I can be honest and open about our brokenness is the degree to which God can heal us of our brokenness. There's an expression in recovery that you are only as sick as your secrets, right? Heard it said many times before. It's only as we are open. And, and I have to be honest with you, that's what I'm, that's, when I'm talking with people, and my brother Jim has helped me out a lot with this, Warren, Michelle, others, Judy, when, I, when I'm interacting with people, if I'm, just, I'm just looking to hear how much people are aware of their brokenness. And I hope that I can be open as well. Because, again, it's only as we acknowledge our brokenness, only as we are seeking a source outside of ourselves, that we are actually safe to save. 
we are safe to be in God's kingdom because even though we don't have it all figured out, we want to get it figured out. However frailly, however imperfectly we do it, so long as we keep coming back to that truth. I'm broken and I need a source outside of myself to unbreak me. And so we're, we're a church as we grow in this restart. We're a church where the values say that we want to be a church where every circle you enter into, you can be who you are in your brokenness and pain without judgment. And that you are free to grow in grace at the Spirit's pace. Not according to what the pastor thinks you should be doing. Not according to what any elder thinks you should be doing. But according to how the Spirit is growing you. Now, are we going to encourage one another and say, Hey, you know, hey Warren, brother, I know you've been struggling with your temper lately. Uh, Is God working on you in that area? You know Warren with his temper. But as we grow up and as we are together a body that understands its brokenness, God can use us to that degree. Does that sound like a plan? Amen. Well, let's sing a classic hymn that was classic at Billy Graham meetings. Just as I am. <laughs>